Good afternoon. My name is Severin Carell. I'm the Scotland editor for The Guardian newspaper. Today we're here for a seminar to mark the launch of a new report by the think tank UK in a Changing Europe, which is based at King's College London. The report, which is called An EU Border Across Britain, Scotland's Borders After Independence, was written by Professors Katie Hayward and Nicola McEwen, who are two of our panellists today. Now, Nicola Sturgeon, Scotland's First Minister and leader of the Scottish National Party, has said that she wants to hold a fresh referendum on Scottish independence later next year. And Ms Sturgeon has said that joining the EU is a key objective for her government and for the Scottish National Party. This report investigates the impacts on the UK's borders and on Scotland's borders if an independent Scotland were to join the European Union. The authors examine how Brexit has profoundly changed the context in which independence is contested and what it would mean for Scotland's borders on these islands. That has significantly changed since the first Scottish independence referendum of 2014. There are major, major events today which illustrate how politicised and fragile things have become and could be in future. In Northern Ireland, the power sharing government is in crisis after the Democratic Unionist Party's First Minister, Paul Given, signalled he plans to resign in a dispute which has its roots in the Brexit checks on food and farm products going between Great Britain and the Irish island. And the UK government is due to publish later today a new UK-wide framework designed to manage differences in environmental policy between the UK's four governments. The Scottish government has already indicated it's unhappy with London's proposals because of other Brexit-related policies. So let me properly introduce today's panel. First, we have Katie Hayward, who's Professor of Political Sociology at Queen's University Belfast and a senior fellow of the UK and a Changing Europe think tank, where she leads a project on the future of Northern Ireland after Brexit. A prolific and internationally recognized expert, she was crowned Political Communicator of the Year by the Political Studies Association in 2019. Her colleague and co-author co of the report, Nicola McEwen, is Professor of Territorial Politics at the University of Edinburgh, a founding co-director of the University Centre on Constitutional Change, and also a senior fellow of the UK in a Changing Europe. Nicola is a specialist on devolution and the impact of Brexit, and was a senior fellow for the Future of the UK and Scotland Research Programme at the time of the 2014 referendum when her research focused on the cross-border dimensions of Scottish independence. Graham Roy is a professor of economics at the University of Glasgow, a dean of external engagement and a director of the Adam Smith Business School, previously head of Alex Salmon's policy unit in the Scottish government. Graham helped transform public knowledge of Scotland's economy when he became director of the Fraser of Allender Institute at Glasgow University. And finally, we have Anand Menon, Professor of Political, European Politics and Foreign Affairs at King's College London, and the founding director of the UK in a Changing Europe think tank, which is funded by the Economic and Social Services Research Council, so sorry, apologies, Economic and Social Science Research Council, and the host of today's event. Anand is one of the UK's foremost analysts and political communicators on Brexit and its political impacts, particularly during the turmoil which gripped the UK government and Conservative Party immediately following the 2016 referendum. So each of the four panelists will be giving us five minutes just to sum up and begin today's conversation. First, Katie Hayward. Thank you very much, Severin, and thank you for chairing this panel. Um, 
If there's one thing that the events in Northern Ireland over the past 24 hours tells us, it's that confusion about the purpose, nature and responsibility for border checks and controls can lead to all sorts of troubles down the line. Our report is a small contribution towards avoiding such trouble in such an eventuality as an independent Scotland rejoining the EU, which we know is the plan, as Severin says, for the parties of the Scottish government. We do this recognising the fact that Brexit hasn't just changed the contemporary relationship between the component parts of the UK, but also the prospect of the future relationship between them. A big part of being an independent sovereign state, as any Brexit supporter knows, is managing the borders of the state. In the scenario we consider here, Scotland's borders would become the external borders of the European Union. In some ways, this is helpful for prediction because we know from both being formally in the EU and now outside it, what this means for border management. Back in the EU, Scotland's borders with the other member states will become softer. And if the protocol's in place, then its border with Northern Ireland will become softer than it is now too. This will bring benefits. At the same time, its border with England and Wales will become considerably harder. What does this mean? When we imagine a hard border, people tend to immediately envisage walls and fences. But um, as I often repeated uh, on, on the case of the island of Ireland, pre-Brexit, the opposite of a hard border isn't an invisible one, but an open one. Put simply, moving something across a hard border requires overcoming more hurdles than across the soft one. These hurdles most obviously take the form of border controls. They include passport controls to manage the flow of people, safety and security declarations to help authorities assess risk prior to arrival, customs facilitations to present, prevent smuggling and ensuring duties are paid, and regulatory controls on standards of goods and services provided. The kind of checks that Minister Poots ordered to be stopped today um, in Northern Ireland are in relation to the most strict form of regulatory controls, namely sanitary, phytosanitary and agri-food products. People don't like such controls uh, in general um, because they're adding time and cost to cross-border movement. But border controls, we must remember, aren't just around trade and immigration. As we've seen post-Brexit, hurdles to border movement will be felt across a vast range of movements. For example, to take some examples from, from Northern Ireland, ATA carnets are needed for temporary export of sound equipment to accompany a band for a gig. The near impossibility of having a prize bull sent over to attend a show. The ban on the entry of seed potatoes or elvers, which I now know are baby eels. The vaccinations and certificates needed to accompany the family dog. You can imagine how a hard border hits border communities first and how this can get complicated very quickly. This is why we focus in our report on the three fundamental principles of border management. To know what's crossing a border, that it meets the criteria for crossing and entry, and that it can be stopped if it doesn't. These three are interlinked. Um, the more regulatory divergence there is between the two jurisdictions, the less sure you can be that a good meets the criteria for entry. The more data you have on what is crossing, the less you need to have at the border controls. And so we move from principles to practice. What is needed in practice can be summarized as four things. First, information. It needs to be submitted to authorities and processed and analyzed and responded to. Second, this requires resources. 
Just listen, for example, to the complaints of businesses about the time and training needed to complete customs paperwork. Third, it requires infrastructure. Uh, more than that, it requires space. The space uh, we now know is needed for lorry parking, space for proper facilities for the drivers who are waiting, uh, space for inspection of refrigerated goods, etc. Last but not least, good border management entails communication between officials and the multiple agencies involved, between authorities on either side of the border, between governments and officials, and between government departments and traders, port authorities, hauliers and border crosses. As we are seeing today, a breakdown or conflict on any of these fronts can bring all sorts of problems. Thank you. Thanks very much, Katie. And now, Professor McEwen. Thanks very much, Seth. So um, it's been a joy to work with Katie on this report. I'd like to say that first of all, and to um, borrow from her expertise on watching all of this unfold in relation to Northern Ireland and the protocol and UK-Irish relations more broadly. And I think there is a lot for us to learn from the UK-Irish experience um, in the context of Brexit for what might be possible and what might not be possible in the scenario that we examine in this report. Now, we've made lots of assumptions in this report. We've assumed there will be a referendum. We've assumed that it would result in a yes vote. We've assumed that Scotland would negotiate independence from the UK and accession to the EU. None of these are predictions. We readily acknowledge that every one of those steps would um, confront um, sometimes significant um, challenges, hurdles uh, in themselves. But we've assumed all of that to set that aside so that it enables us to focus on this one uh, particular um, issue, which for now at least is an academic question, but could become um, a political um, question. What happens to Scotland's borders under independence in the EU? And as Katie um, outlined, we are quite specifically talking about borders plural. There's the border with the EU, which would open up again, which would provide um, free movement for businesses, workers, students, researchers, um, and remove the restrictions um, and barriers that were introduced uh, by Brexit that we can imagine would create new opportunities, new supply chains, new um, uh, labour market uh, opportunities as well. But there is a proviso that we do include in the report, and that's that for trade going from Scotland to the rest of the EU, for now, most of that crosses through um, England. England would be a sizable land bridge between Scotland and its European markets, and that would present some logistical uh, challenges. There's also Scotland's border with Northern Ireland, which because Northern Ireland, under the terms of the protocol, is within the EU single market for goods, um, trade between Scotland and Northern Ireland has become a bit more difficult um, in the context of Brexit. Under our scenario, that would be easier as well. But it's the land border that is, tends to be the focus in these debates, the land border between Scotland and England, which would become an international border between Scotland and the UK, and an external border of the European Union, and that would impose obligations on the Scottish Government to ensure that all goods and services entering the EU via that land border would be eligible for entry and meet 
EU standards to protect the integrity of the EU single market. In practice, um, Katie talked about the kinds of things that would have to happen. We make a distinction between at the border checks um, and behind the border checks. At the border checks, we are talking about a mixture of infrastructure, physical inspection facilities and technology. Probably worth um, reflecting on the nature of the border between Scotland and England. It's 154 kilometres or 96 miles, depending on your metric of choice. Um, there are around 20, sorry, there are around 25 crossing points, roads. Um, most of those are minor. Um, there's one major trunk road, uh, which we assume would be used for customs uh, processing, Glasgow to Carlisle uh, route. Uh, there's another three uh, trunk roads, although I think only one of those is a trunk road on the English side. Um, so in terms of the practicalities of managing a border, because so much of the border physically is rivers or hills or nature reserves, the practicalities of it are more manageable than they might be in some other contexts. But it still requires physical checks. It still requires um, regulatory checks. And in particular, it will require uh, more behind the border checks of the type that, that Katie already outlined. Um, what it wouldn't require, uh, on, in our view, is passport checks, um, because our assumption is that an independent Scotland in the European Union would be able to negotiate itself out of the, the border aspects of the Schengen Agreement and justify remaining uh, within the common travel area as Ireland uh, does already. And CTA, the common travel area, is recognised within the EU treaties. But it's important to recognise its limitations. EU citizens um, living in Scotland wouldn't necessarily be able to access the rights within the common travel area because these are rights granted to UK and Irish citizens, rights to live, work and access services and to travel across borders for business purposes. The CTA also doesn't really help with services uh, arrangements on which the Scottish economy relies very heavily. Uh, you can access for business purposes, but it doesn't extend all of the free movement rights um, for services. No mutual recognition of qualifications, for example. And it'll be interesting to note how this is being um, sorted, um, sorry, how all this is being worked on and developed and evolving in the UK and Irish uh, relationship, um, because I do think that will be insightful for us. Final point is simply to say that one of the reasons why we're talking about this now, the challenges that we are identifying in the report are consequences of Brexit. They are consequences of the nature of the UK and EU relationship and the terms set out in the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. How that evolves, how that relationship evolves, um, will be quite significant in shaping the challenges that would be faced by an independent Scotland. Thank you. Thanks very much, Nicola. And now over to Professor Graham Roy. Thank you, Severin. And just so you can start just by Congratulating both Nicola and Katie on what I think is a fantastic report and really helpful and offers some really interesting insights into some of the key challenges, but some of the key issues that we need to work through in thinking about issues around 
the, the border. And it's quite interesting that back in 2014, a lot of these economic issues that arise in the border were really parked because it was into a wider debate about whether or not Scotland would retain or rejoin membership of the EU. So actually, beginning to think through these things is actually really important as a first step before we start to think about the broader issues that might be existing around economics of independence and, and, and things. So I think this report is a really timely and welcome uh, contribution in that regard. I just want to do a couple of things uh, and to help set the scene for the context of the discussions that, that we'll have around the data and what we know about Scotland's export orientation to the rest of the UK and to Europe and, and to further afield. Now, one thing I should say is, is one caution is that the data that we have on Scottish exports and imports to the rest of the UK and internationally is, is patchy, better than other parts of the UK, but we have to acknowledge that there are some uncertainties in there. And it can come through a number of reasons. One is, as Nicola said, there's practical reasons about the rest of the UK being a bridge, a formal bridge into other markets. But there's also some technical issues about the way we collect statistics. For example, firms might not know the exact destination of the final market they're doing. So they might be exporting to a supplier in, in the rest of the UK who's then exporting it on to other countries. So there's a caveat there that we need to, to know. And also that part of it might be that firms are part of a, a supply chain. So they may be exporting into the rest of the UK or, or interacting with a UK company that is then exporting and part of a much bigger supply chain. So there are caveats that we need to that we need to be aware of when interpreting the data. But what do we do know from the Scottish Government data that's produced? So exports to the rest of the UK back in 2019 were around about 52 billion, so about 60% of all total exports from Scotland. Exports to the EU were about 16.4 billion, so about 20%, just under 20% of all exports from Scotland. So clearly, the rest of the UK at the current moment in time is a much bigger market for Scottish exports than, than the EU and even indeed the rest of the world. But one subtle point as well, which is sometimes lost, but really important and builds on the point that Nicola and Katie said about the value of services here, is that what is really crucial about our, our exports to the rest of the UK is just how significant services are into that market. So actually, if you look at manufacturing goods, we export not that, pretty much the same to the rest of the UK in manufacturing goods as we do to the EU. It's around about £10 billion. Where the big differential in Scottish exports to the UK come through is through services. So one of the questions I think about thinking about directing the, the border would be is if there's more disruption to services, your ability to pivot into new markets, into the EU, for example, isn't just about entering into new markets in terms of country, but potential types of new products, because you're going to have to be generating more goods and manufactured goods in order to offset any potential hit you might get in services. So there's not just a displacement in terms of markets, but a displacement in terms of potentially in terms of products as well. And that has the issues that are raised in the report about, about how you do all of that and the intricacies about uh, borders for services and borders for goods. Are really important to unpick and understand. So, so what are the kind of broad issues that I think that we would conclude from what we know about the data so far? It's hard to escape the conclusion that if you use the same modelling that Scottish government and UK government used around Brexit to say that erecting a border with the rest of the UK um, wouldn't have a negative impact on, on the Scottish um, economy. And that's largely just down, as I mentioned, to the scale of exports at the moment from Scotland to the rest of the UK, but also crucially 
the sectors that uh, we export uh, into. There's a question then about if you are going to try and pivot to the export markets, do we have the underlying economic structure that will support that pivot into potential new markets? So in short, do we have the core manufacturing base if that's where the opportunities are potentially going to be? So, so some big questions about the, 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 the opportunities there into trading one border for another, both in terms of scale, but also in terms of, of focus. I think one thing I would say though as well is Brexit has shown there will be winners and losers and you know working through all of that is going to be really difficult. We've seen it obviously with the Scottish food and drink industry and the challenges that they face. So planning is going to be absolutely crucial and working through issues about how you get products to markets if you're transitioning through one country into another is, is fundamentally important as well. But there are caveats to all of this. As I mentioned, there are uncertainties about the modelling, uncertainties about the data, about what we can and can't say about the exact out, out, outcomes. Much depends on what else. So Nicola has very eloquently said, you know, what we're doing in this report is, what they're doing in this report is very much isolating the issue of the border. But clearly, when we're thinking about potential trading options for an independent Scotland, you open up lots of other questions about would currency become a particular issue here? What what levers might the Scottish government pull in order to make the economy more productive and more export oriented in the first place that might help offset any challenges around um, borders? And we have seen that countries can pivot in trade profiles, Ireland being the obvious one that people cite, but it's not costless and it doesn't happen overnight. It takes decades and, and special sets of circumstances to, 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 to work through. And I think the final point I would make in all of this is that if the very purpose of independence is actually to move away from the rest of the UK, so to depart from, from the UK um, in terms of employability, in terms of environmental, then you just make the challenges of that border issue more significant. And that's not to say it's not the right thing to do. But the very argument for independence is Scotland taking a different path to a UK that um, policymakers and voters don't want to be tied to because we don't like the decisions they're taking then the quid pro quo of that is that that border becomes harder as a result of that. So lots of really exciting and topical issues to, to speak through. And just once again, just to congratulate Nicola and Katie on what I think is a fantastic report. Thank you, Graham. And now, uh, Professor Anand Menon to sum up before we start on the Q&A. Thank you. And just to add my thanks to Nicola and Katie as well for putting out such a great report. Uh, I've drawn the short straw because I've been asked to talk about the future of the UK-EU relationship. And I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's so unpredictable and it keeps changing so fast. I mean, you know, from the perspective of where we are today, a, a breakdown of the relationship and of the TCA can't be excluded. Uh, we don't know what uh, the UK side is going to do. The future of the protocol is therefore far from certain. So the future of an independent Scotland relationship with both England and Northern Ireland in terms of borders is up for doubt, given that uncertainty. Uh, ultimately, I mean, if you sort of can cast your eye away from the immediate, I think the future is going to hinge on politics. Uh, and whilst the, that future is, is shrouded in uncertainty, I mean, the two scenarios, I suppose, is Scottish independence happens under a Conservative government. Uh, even here, of course, it depends on what kind of Conservative government under the leadership of whom. 
uh, you could quite conceivably have the current prime minister in charge, uh, or you could have an alternative. I mean, you can imagine a conservative government. I mean, you know, Graham was talking about divergence of what that means for borders. I mean, one of the interesting things about UK policy post-Brexit under Boris Johnson has been we haven't diverged in the way you might expect a conservative government. We haven't created Singapore on Thames. We've created kind of de Gaulle on Thames. Divergence means having a more flexible subsidy regime that means we can throw money at industry, which isn't what you'd have predicted for a Brexit under a Conservative government. But you can imagine a Conservative government under a different leader, more ideologically committed to divergence for economic reasons, that moves away from EU regulations far more systematically. And that has implications not just for the UK EU border, but will have implications there. Well, will have implications for the Scottish border because that will be an EU border. So I think, you know, a lot depends on where a future Conservative government goes, if that's what we're dealing with. The other thing I would say, I mean, politically, the other interesting thing about the politics of all this is that what we're seeing for the first time, I think last October, for the first time, we saw a majority of Leave supporters uh, disapproving of Boris Johnson's uh, prime ministership. Uh, we're also seeing more and more people saying to uh, surveys that Brexit is being handled badly. Up to this point, it's sort of been an assumption, and it was for a while my assumption, that Brexit was a go-to political issue that the government, if in trouble, could turn to. You know, you've got a domestic problem, have a fight with the European Union and you'll rally the base. I'm not sure that's as true as it was because of this apparent fraying of support from Leave supporters. So it might even become in the interests of the a Conservative government to show that it had genuinely got Brexit done and resolved the outstanding issues. So that's the first side. I apologise for the fact it was incredibly unclear, but my thinking on this is incredibly unclear. But there are variations of Conservative government. I think we will see significant differences if Labour were in power. I don't think under the Conservative government, under any hue, there would be much in the way of steps towards building on the TCA uh, for a variety of reasons, not least the fact that if, if the government wants to get Brexit done, it's to put Brexit behind us, not to open new negotiations with the EU. Labour have already said that they'll sign an SPS agreement with the European Union. Uh, Labour are interested in the mobility package that the EU offered in the March of 2020, which allows for visa-free travel for service providers for 90 days. I think they would move closer to the EU on that. I suspect they might revisit the, the decision on identity cards as well. Uh, one of the big profound impacts of the decision on identity cards has been to prevent school kids coming on school visits over here. And that is something I think that Labour might move on. And the final thing where I think under a Labour government we might see some change, again this hinges very much on the nature of a, of a, of a Labour government, uh, but I think the one area we might see some change is on mutual recognition that uh, Nicola touched on. I think there's far more appetite amongst some Labour frontbenchers to think in terms of improving the situation on mutual recognition, certainly than there is on the Tory side. It is interesting to me that we are now reaching the post-Brexit stage I say post-Brexit in a loose sense, uh, that you are seeing not just politicians on the Labour benches, but also trade associations coming up for suggestions for building on the trade and cooperation agreement. The 
British Chamber of Commerce came out with some really interesting proposals a couple of weeks ago, which included not just things like customs facilitation, but also uh, moving on VAT. And I think, you know, in the event that, that government starts listening to business, that is a very big if in the current climate in the UK, you might see some serious consideration of these sorts of measures to make borders slightly easier for businesses to deal with. And that in turn will have spillover effects for independent Scotland as well. I mean, there's curious tension here, I think. On the one hand, the more that you have a bolshy British government that is shouting about Brexit and causing trouble with the European Union, the more it might be easy for Nicola Sturgeon to make the case that look what they're doing, actually, haven't you had enough of this? On the other hand, the smoother relations are between between the British government and the European Union, and the more the British government does to facilitate cross-border movement, the easier it is practically for a post-independent Scotland to think about that border. So there's an interesting balancing out there. Final thing I'd say is obviously the state of our political relationship with the European Union might bear on the referendum itself. Uh, you know, if it's a situation of all out daggers drawn between the UK and the EU, between London and the EU at the time of a Scottish independence referendum, there will be more loose talk on the EU side about how good it would be to welcome Scotland and we can't blame them for wanting to leave. If we're in a stage where relations are getting much better and both sides see it as in their advantage to keep those relationships better, I suspect we'll see less of that talk. It'd be very interesting under a Labour government to see what the EU is willing to say about a Scottish referendum, I think, because their priority might be building relationships with London rather than undermining them. But for what it's worth, those are my extremely sketchy speculations about the future. Thank you very much, Ananda. I'm really grateful for that. Now, we have a number of um, questions which have already come in using the uh, Slido link, which is available as part of this seminar. Now, I'm going to choose a number of those questions which have been put uh, up by the audience. I won't be able to get to everybody's, I'm afraid. So before we get to that, I'd just like to begin the conversation by asking Katie, please, if you could talk a, a bit in a bit more detail about what you think the current crisis in Northern Ireland with the DUP and the food and um, agricultural checks means for Scotland about the way Scotland um, considers or the Scottish government and the SNP consider how they navigate these sorts of problems in the future. I mean, is the DUP uh, conflict uh, 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 very much a local factional dispute or does it actually illustrate and highlight a pretty profound question and issue which would face Scotland and England too in the future about how you deal with some pretty difficult and very gnarly trade and economic issues? Um, so, I mean, first and foremost, what's happened in the past 24 hours and what might happen in the next few hours uh, is very much about local politics and extremely local politics. We're talking almost constituency level in some cases. Um, and what's going on within the DUP as a party um, is very significant in all of this. Um, so there are peculiarities here that you can never escape from. Um, however, there are some things that you could certainly read across to um, thinking about the border issues, if you, if you want to put it that way, that an independent Scotland would have to be considering. And I think first and foremost, it's about being, you know, absolutely realistic about what it is to have harder borders. 
and what they require. And I think part of the problem that we've had over the protocol has been um, the downplaying of the significance of Brexit for borders. Um, a lot of the debate and discussion around the prospect of um, a hard Irish border during the Brexit um, negotiations um, was very much around, you know, uh, say downplaying the significance of what the EU requires and suggesting that we can use technology to solve it. So if you can't see it, that harder border doesn't have an impact, which is of course nonsense, because as we're trying to explain, it's a lot about what happens behind the border and what's required to cross it. Um, hopefully we've moved on from that. Where we are at the moment, the DUP and the UK government themselves at the moment are primarily objecting to the existence of checks and controls or the extent of them on goods that are moving from GB but staying in Northern Ireland. They do say if these goods are going into the Republic of Ireland and then into the EU, then they recognize that checks and controls are necessary. Um, it's a different scenario for, for an independent Scotland in the EU. Um, because of course, you know, goods crossing into Scotland would be entering the single market. Um, and so we do now, we have now come to the point where the, the UK government and even the DUP sort of recognize that some checks and controls have to happen on goods entering the single market. Um, but a, a lot of the issue that we're seeing now, as I say, is around not addressing the fundamental point around the implications of if you like disintegration from the EU or from a union such as the UK is the implications of disintegration for the borders and what that means for, for people way beyond uh, traders themselves. Thank you, Katie. Now look, I mean, one of the um, intriguing questions that all of this raises, I think, is whether or not these conflicts are actually uh, testing and ironing out the sorts of conflicts which um, the Scottish government could avoid because by the time, assuming that there is a referendum in 2013 and assuming that Scotland votes yes, and assuming that the Scot Scotland and the UK government then begin the process of negotiating Scotland's um, separation from the rest of the United Kingdom, the conflicts with Northern Ireland, the conflicts between the UK government and the European Union may actually end up with a resolution which presents a much easier um, set of answers. It's testing these questions before Scotland has to embark on this particular process. Can I ask um, Katie and then Anand and then Nicola whether or not you feel that actually much of this could make life for the SNP and for the Scottish government easier rather than more difficult? Sorry, so in, in, in what sense? If well, because, I mean, it, 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 the, if, if um, the Northern Irish and UK governments are in conflict over this border and if they're in conflict with the EU over things such as the uh, amount of tariff or the custom controls of a pepper pig or the customs controls which prevents a, um, a, a, a breeding bull traveling from Northern Ireland to Scotland or similar, if these sorts of um, conflicts are, uh, or, or the, the debates that are going on between the various governments are dealing with very core issues about how you make these um, processes as smooth as possible and as um, friction-free as possible, 
then by the time Scotland gets to have the same conversations with the UK government and possibly with Europe and indeed with Northern Ireland and Ireland, post a yes vote and a referendum, many of these, we now may have the answers to these problems because at the moment we don't have the answers, do we? Um, no, we don't. Um, there are two things I'd want to say before passing it on. One is that, you know, specific arrangements for Northern Ireland or means by which we may have mitigations, we already do, but further mitigations for movement of goods from GB into Northern Ireland. Um, we say in the report how, uh, you know, how unlikely it is that there will be similar mitigations for Scotland, England, um, given the particular circumstances here. Um, but more generally, yes, you're right in that, um, you know, even a big part of making borders operate smoothly is uh, people being prepared for it, like knowing what to expect. And a huge issue that we had um, on the 1st of January last year with respect to the protocol. And then again, this year as the UK itself has begun to, uh, as GB has begun to properly implement border controls, it's just people weren't prepared. They didn't know what to expect. They didn't come with the right paperwork, right? Um, so uh, that familiarity will, will help, even though we we're talking about diff different, um, different contexts, different borders here. Um, but ultimately, if you have, if, if I say you're disintegrating from a union, harder borders um, will have implications and they will have ramifications. Um, so although a lot of degrees around you know, certain as Nicola mentioned briefly, like technological um, means to help smooth movement across. These do help, but fundamentally, the impact of harder borders um, can't be avoided. And uh, and Graham will talk about this much more knowledgeably than me. But um, essentially, what we're already seeing post protocol, post Brexit, is people try to avoid those hurdles and obstacles that they do have implications for the decisions then that people make about whether to cross borders, whether it be for, um, you know, going to work somewhere or offer a service somewhere or to, to export, etc. Thank you. Anand, could I just throw the same question at you, please? Mm -hmm. I mean, I'd say a couple of things. I mean, firstly, there's always work going on about how to make borders smoother all over the world. I mean, the Norwegians and the Swedes are trying all the time. The Canadians, the Americans are trying all the time. It's not just GBNI, but you know, technologies move on, and maybe the technologies that we were going to use will one day be invented. Uh, so that you know, that's a general thing. But the second is to reiterate Katie's point: is I think the danger is to assume that any flexibility shown for GBNI would be mirrored in terms of uh, a Scottish border, and I just don't think that's the case because of the unique political circumstances around Northern Ireland, the Good Friday Agreement the vital interests of a member state were uh, directly at play in the negotiations over Northern Ireland. So I don't think uh, the, the flexibility that the EU has undoubtedly shown over Northern Ireland is going to be replicated in the case of Scotland. Sorry, so on that in that case then, do you think that there are problems that may crop up for Scotland as it applies to join the EU that we don't even know yet exist? That there are additional things that we have yet to scope out? Uh, possibly. I mean, you know, we're, we're living with it on the south coast of England at the moment, what happens when you put that sort of border in. But I suspect uh, that border is going to be more of a model 
in a sense, if you're trying to learn lessons, than the specific sort of GBNI border, which has a number of mitigations and flexibilities built in because of the unique circumstances of Northern Ireland. Interesting. Thank you. And, and, you know, every border is different and trade is different from different countries between different countries. So you'll, you'll come up with things you hadn't run up with before just because of the specificities of each case. Thank you. Look, just with an eye on time, I'm actually just going to quickly um, flip to another question and then move into the question from members of the audience. Uh, just drawing on some um, questions which are flagged up in the report, particularly um, on page, page 14, where you have to you look at the question which has already been alluded to of what it's like to actually live on or close to the border so if we look at the situation facing scots living in uh, the scottish border say in coldstream or in gretna green being used without thinking about it going shopping at the supermarkets in berwick upon tweed or in carlisle or indeed using a G the english people in, the, in northumberland using a GP service in Scotland, potentially having jobs cross the border. And with an eye on what has happened at its worst with Northern Ireland and uh, the Irish Republic, I'm just curious to know whether there is a, um, there are some very uh, acute uh, problems that people are going to face in future when Scotland becomes independent and tr tries to join the EU that are going to interrupt very basic elements of daily life. And I'd like to ask Katie first about whether Northern Ireland's experience is of interest here, and then throw the same question at Nicola and at Graham. Uh, yes, I'll be as brief as possible, but um, I mean, those studies that we've been doing, um, the Irish Central Border Area Network um, show that even though we have the protocol um, and the Central Cross Border Studies is also been doing work on this, Post-Brexit, there has been an effect of, um, uh, Brexit has been felt on North-South relations, but particularly in border communities on both sides. Um, COVID has been a complicating factor in all of this, of course, given that none of us have been able to travel anyway, let alone across the border. But um, most definitely it has implications and it's most complex there because if we're talking about a broad project of integration, then a broad project of disintegration, of course you're feeling it most acutely um, and as I, I, you know, I mentioned the, the question of the family dog, I mean, when you're just accidentally in a national park crossing over a border, you know, these things do have ramifications. Um, and when you are dealing with a situation where you're applying EU rules, not ones that necessarily you would have chosen um, as a state, then that, that, you know, these have to be carefully thought through in advance. Um, and this is why border communities tend to be the most anxious understandably around you know this is where it hits this is where the implications of a harder brexit in ireland's case or harder border are really felt most acutely and on a day-to-day -day basis yeah uh, nicola how do you think this is going to impact the people living in coldstream yeah i mean we, we, it's impossible to say precisely uh, what the impacts would be um, other than to say of course there would be some, I mean, there might be some sort of flexibilities or arrangements for people who frequently cross the border. Um, we're not assuming that um, every time you go to the shops um, in Newcastle, you have to come and get your baggage inspected when you go home. Um, Katie will know more about this from other border communities than, than I do and maybe want to comment on that specifically. But there would be some issues to be 
um, aware of. And I think the broader politics of this is quite important as well, because we are talking about communities in the borders, in the Scottish borders, who, unless things change between now and, you know, this, if this scenario unfolds, would be the communities that would be least likely to support independence. So I think there would have to be an awful lot of work um, done on the part of whoever was in Scottish government at the time to offer reassurance, to offer um, support um, and to um, guide people through whatever challenges um, independence would present for those border communities. But there definitely would be some. Can I just go back to a point that Katie mentioned in, in response to your previous question about downplaying? Because I think there is downplaying um, on the part of um, the SNP about the significance of the border challenge. And I have some sympathies. It's not a problem of their making. It's not a problem that they wanted because they would much rather the rest of the UK at the time of independence was also within the European Union or within the single market. But nonetheless, it is a problem that would have to be faced. And I think what we learn from the Brexit process is the importance of acknowledging the challenge and being prepared for it. So ensuring that there are systems in place, ensuring that there is awareness and communication um, and support uh, for, for anyone who would be affected, um, but also time. So Brexit happened at pace in the end. Um, a lot of businesses were not prepared, were not given appropriate guidance. And there isn't really any need for that kind of rush. So um, my guidance or my advice would be that if you are going to do this, take the time that you need to get the systems in place. Or else you could just tweet saying, a uh, minister could just tweet saying there is no such thing as the Anglo-Scottish land border. <laughs> Graham, can we just, can, can I just throw this to you just now? And I wonder, hopefully this isn't too much of a, a clunky segue, but a number of um, members of the audience have asked about the common travel area and about the desirability for both England and for Scotland, and indeed Northern Ireland and Ireland, for Scotland to be part of the common travel area. How do you think, you know, clearly there are huge issues about the amount of friction for trade and for business that a new hard border will introduce. But this question about mitigation, the question about trying to learn lessons and make it as friction-free as possible, presumably that's in everybody's interest, isn't it? Yes, and it's a short answer. Um, the, I mean, a couple of things on the border, the locality of the border from an economic perspective, is much less of an issue in Scotland than it is in Northern Ireland. Nicola was explaining about the, the feature of the Scottish border, but um, if you look at where the big macroeconomic centres, where the big economic centres of activity are, they're, they're quite far removed from the, the border. And something that we sometimes overplay where you might see policy variations leading to behaviour. So we had quite a lot of stories around when minimum pricing was going to come in, that people would be flooding down to Carlisle to, to stock up and come back. And there's no real evidence of that. Some even around income tax, you know, the divergence between Scotland and the rest of the UK on income tax. There's no real hard evidence yet that you're seeing people basing their location decisions on that. So I think we've got to watch, we don't overestimate from an economic perspective the 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 kind of the, the geographical element of the border. Because I think for me, building on the point earlier about it's the services from Scotland's relationship with our UK is the bit that's really crucial for that. So the border is well behind 
as Katie was saying, well behind the actual geographical border, it's the relationship there that are going to be really important. Um, but I mean, the, the point about the common travel area, I think, opens up the, 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 the broader issue that I think that is, is really important in all of this. And it's not something that's obviously was the feature of the report. But when we talk about borders and we talk about Scottish membership of the EU, obviously one of the big things there is about Scotland's population. And again, the issue in borders and trade is one part of a much bigger conversation about economics of an independent Scotland. And we know that one of the big challenges that we face as a country, much more so than the rest of the UK, is our uh, shrinking working age population and our ageing population of the long term. So, you know, re, you know, rejoining the European Union, if it provides an opportunity to potentially attract more migration, then is actually something which is a positive for Scotland, for Scotland's economy. So while we're talking about trade in this specific case, there are also some other issues as well, some that will be negative that are linked to the conversation we're having here, and some that will be positive in the migration is the obvious one, which is a potential um, advantage of, of Scotland seeking uh, EU membership post-independence relative to a, a closer tie with the rest of the UK. Thank, thank you, Graham. Can I just go back to this point that was raised earlier, I think, by Nicola, that this idea that um, in terms of Scotland's trading links to the European continent, um, the England is a, is, is, is a significant bridge. It's the land bridge upon, across which the vast bulk of Scottish exports, particularly obviously physical exports, are um, traded. And one of our questioners has asked whether or not Scotland ought to be putting really significant emphasis now on building direct ferry routes to the European Union. And you'd mentioned in the report, I think, that there are already in existence um, international rules and protocols governing the fact that goods that are transiting um, a country for which they are not the destination should be able to transit the country um, you know, tariff-free, as it were. Do you think, Nicola and Graham, that that element of any future negotiations before Scotland even begins thinking about applying for EU membership, when it comes to a deal-making with the UK government, that those kinds of friction-free trading um, processes are going to be, or transiting processes, will be absolutely essential. Graham, can I ask you first? Yeah, and this is where we get into the breakdown of the specifics of the sectors about what really matter from a Scottish trading point of view. And as I said, you know, the services being absolutely crucial in that relationship between Scotland and the rest of the UK, financial services, banking being the obvious ones, and there's an opportunity to then, of course, pivot potentially into the EU. But, but you're right in terms of the manufacturing part of it, then England, the rest of the, the, rest of the UK is, is an important land bridge for Scotland in there. So having that access through really matters. Again, if you actually start to unpick the numbers, it's things like whiskey. So there's obviously very clear rules around, around um, the excise duty and bonded duty for, for transporting that. Things like petrochemicals, which are another big exporter for Scotland internationally. It's about pharmaceutical products. So there's a relatively small number of really relatively big areas which are really important uh, in Scotland and, and having that really clear. I think one final thing I would say just about Yes, there's a point about using it as a bridge, but that's that's very much when we're talking about like the final product. One of the things that is really important is and has come up through Brexit significantly is the interlinkages within the supply chains. So it's your Boeing plant out in Shinnan near Glasgow Airport that makes a widget for 
um, for one part of, a, of a, an aircraft that then gets fed into a much bigger supply chain or a, a Scottish leather manufacturer that makes the, the seat covers for um, a, a Jaguar made somewhere else. It, it's that part of it which is which is 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 really important as well, and how you navigate through those interlinkages in the supply chain. Sorry, Nicola. Yeah, I mean that's that's really important, and and we probably haven't given enough attention in the report to that kind of interlinking of of products. I mean, what we did um, note is that one of the issues with the Landridge um, challenge is that it presents. A logistical problem and would um, probably require a change to current practice. So as we understand it, and I'm not a logistics expert, but if you have um, completed goods or if you have goods that are uh, EU bound that are going through, going on a lorry that is going through England, it, that lorry may also have things that are not EU bound. And then that isn't then sealed for direct access to the European market. So that creates um, other additional challenges and wouldn't necessarily then be seen as being direct from Scotland to the EU. Um, so could open up um, customs uh, challenges there. So these are the kinds of things that would have to be considered. And yes, I suspect it probably would um, lead to more direct routes. I'm not quite sure what the cost implications of that um, for businesses would be, but we are already seeing that um, in the Irish uh, case um, with more direct routes to the European markets for Ireland um, and at really quite quickly um, changes in, in behaviour on the Irish side. And what that suggests to us is that businesses will find the path of least resistance. Um, and if it's easier to go a different way, that is what they will do. That's a really interesting point. And can I um, ask Anand this question, the next question first off, which is a bit of a melange of things that uh, members of the audience have, have flagged and things that I think are also worth looking at. Anand, when you were speaking, you mentioned the fact, of course, that we don't yet know what's going to happen with the um, any changes in the UK government's complexion, whether that's going to be a different Tory prime minister or whether, in fact, Labour could end up being the government in Westminster and where their attitudes and towards Europe and the EU may change and shift. There is a question that was raised by one member of the audience asking, would Scottish independence accelerate a future English and Welsh government rejoining the single market and customs union? Now, the questioner here has specified a non-Tory English and Welsh government, but I wonder whether a yes vote in Scotland, given all the crises in Northern Ireland, could actually trigger a pretty significant rethink um, in England and the uh, Whitehall departments in Westminster about the intelligence of England remaining this rump of pro-Brexit holdouts where the rest of the British and Irish islands are actually saying this is bonkers, we need to have a much closer relationship with Europe. Can Scotland's independence force the English government to rethink? That's the question on that. I mean, my cynical take on that is twofold. Firstly, it can absolutely reinforce a sort of bolshy sense of we're going to keep doing what we were doing on the part of the English. I think that, you know, <laughs> the sort of equal and opposite reaction is perfectly likely on behalf of English public opinion. And secondly, I find it very, very hard to envisage how we have a Labour government if Scotland is independent. Uh, 
I mean, you know, this changes the politics quite profoundly. So, I, you know, an independent Scotland poses real problems for the Labour Party, because if you're thinking about the next election and the potential for Labour to win, you, you know, you'd, you'd say it's going to be in coalition and part of that, well, maybe not a formal coalition, but it will be in collaboration with other parties, one of whom will be the SNP. Uh, actually, I should just say, I did mention a third option, which is that we have a Conservative government under the current Prime Minister. Uh, Indeed. So we shouldn't write yeah. that off. It, 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 it just occurs to me, like I'm sure it's occurring to a lot of people, that with all of these different dynamics and trends in so many different parts of the British and Irish islands, including the fact that in Wales, you have a Labour government now leaning towards a, the issue about Welsh independence, raising questions about federalism, the notion that actually we have four different polities with four diff very different attitudes. It's getting so messy now, potentially, that isn't it in the UK government and the British state's interests to try and be as ameliorative as possible and try and introduce more harmony rather than more conflict? Or again, am I being naive? Well, I mean, you could have made exactly the same argument on the 24th of June 2016 couldn't you? Which is you've got four nations, they've, you know, they've divided in how they voted on this. So wouldn't you expect the British government to take a diplomatic and conciliatory attitude towards the others? And we all know what happened uh, in the wake of that. So my answer would be not necessarily. I would say, you know, four politics, four nations has been the case since long before people started talking about it. Uh, Fair point. Know. Yeah. And listen, yeah. just come we just happen to be talking about it now, but I don't think you know this is this is necessarily that much of a of a of a new development. Yeah, um, that's a very a very quick and simple throw to Nicola. Nicola, can you just pick that point up? I mean, do you think we we could see a a, a new realistic politics taking shape, you know, taking hold in Whitehall? Or do you think Anand is right that actually it's always been this way? Why should it change? Um. I don't think it has always been this way. Um, I, we have a much more fragmented politics geographically um, than was the case in, well, we're into a new decade now, but say, you know, in the early years of devolution, it was not as fragmented as it is now. Um, I would also sort of maybe countenance the, the, the point that there wouldn't be a Labour government um, for two reasons. One, the Blair government didn't need Scotland. Um, it enjoyed a lot of support in Scotland, but it had majority in England. Um, but also what we what we do know from political behaviour now is that voters are a lot less loyal to parties than they used to be. So I, I don't think we should assume that it would be impossible for the Labour Party or any other party to win in England um, if Scotland wasn't there. So it's just one sort of slightly different view. Thank you. Can I just go back a couple of steps? Can I just ask all four panel members a very simple, effectively, it's a yes or no question, but it clearly it probably isn't. Um, do we take it as read that after a yes vote in Scotland, assuming there is a yes vote, and the uh, Scottish and UK government start negotiations about Scotland's separation from the UK, that it is a given that Scotland, that it's in everybody's interest for Scotland to be part of the common travel area? in the British and Irish islands. Can I just start, can I start with Nicola, please? Is it a given that that will happen? Um, it's definitely a given that that's what um, Scotland would want to happen. Um, and I don't see a reason why um, 
a UK government would not want that to happen. It would have to be negotiated um, as part of EU accession, though, um, that Scotland could stay out of the Schengen zone and remain within the common travel area on a similar basis uh, to Ireland. But I suppose one of the things I would um, mention in all of this is what is in the UK government's interests. And that might be shaped by the politics of independence, how bitter uh, things are, how the relationship is between the two administrations. But the rest of the UK trades with Scotland too. The rest of the UK population moves, moves freely within Scotland too. So there would be interests and pressures, I think, um, coming from that side to try to ensure that there wasn't a hard border that would affect or, or, or an overly hard border that would affect the interests of businesses on the other side um, of the border as well. Thank you. So, um, Graham, I just go to you on that point, please. So, I just really to agree with, from an economic perspective, with Nicola's kind of final point there. I mean, there's no, there's no reason why, from an economic point of view, that the UK, rest of the UK, would want to have a constructive, positive relationship with an independent Scotland. And obviously, the, the freedom of movement and by the common travel is absolutely crucial to that as well. Because one thing that we know from economic history is persistence is really strong effect here. There are cultural ties, there are family ties. These all things that bind together. So you might have change of political borders and international boundaries, but these remain, and these are really powerful, and they last. They last for a long time. So again, that would suggest that again, there's nothing to suggest why the why the rest of the UK would want to deliberately not to to support that. But as Nicholas says, there's a lot of politics in that. So. Thank you, and Katie. Uh, yes, although I would sort of have a note of caution around what the common travel area does and can do. So again, before Brexit, there was an awful lot of focus upon the common travel area and pointing to it and saying, well, you don't need to worry so much about the Irish border because of the existence of the common travel area. Um, and of course, um, we know the limitations of the common travel area uh, in terms of who it applies to, as Nicola's already mentioned, uh, but also how, um, how it lacks a strong legal underpinning. Um, and certainly it predated, obviously, EU membership. Um, but EU membership went considerably further than the common travel area did in terms of rights to, to work and study um, and but, access but, services. Yeah. Mm. Sorry to interrupt, but it, it did crucially mean that Ireland didn't have to become part of Schengen, did it not? Yes. Which is an important point for Scotland. So, I mean, Scotland does not want to be part of Schengen, does it, really? Um, it's a bad idea. <laughs> Uh, I, I, as Nicholas says, I don't think it's not the, the policy. The policy, as I understand, or the hope would be that um, the common travel area, not Scotland, the same common travel area, uh, even though the EU expects that now of new members that they would join Schengen. Um, I, I, but bear in mind, too, the UK itself is developing its own, obviously, immigration uh, rules, um, and they will have consequences um, mm -hmm. for the movement of people. Um, so, again, something that adds friction within the common travel area. And we're already seeing this around concerns around um, the Nationality and Borders Bill, um, of what happens to um, across the Irish border, uh, in theory, if, if not in practice, around people who, who in theory should have completed an electronic travel authorization in advance, this kind of thing. So uh, uh, the sort of the limitations of those, uh, of the common travel area, 
are being exposed by Brexit and they would be further exposed perhaps by Scottish independence. There'd be hope, I think, that there'd be much more strong legal foundations before, by that point, you know. Thank you. Now, can I just change the um, topic here? We're in the approaching the last 10 minutes of this session and just um, ask Graham particularly a question about the, the economics of um, trading relationships with the rest of the UK or you know, the rump of the UK post-independence. One of the things which is striking looking at Scotland's trade data is that Scotland does operate a fairly sizable trade deficit in that its imports are greater in value than its exports. Depends which uh, measures you use, but over the last couple of years, a deficit has been around 11 to 12 billion pounds, which you know, is 16% of its exports last year or 7% of its overall trade. I'm just wondering whether the um, problems that a hard border is going to present to Scotland uh, when it comes to additional friction, additional rules, regulations, and so on, and barriers to trade, is going to make that trade deficit worse. How does one deal with that if we're designing a new set of relationships with both the rest of the UK and with the EU? So, so how long did you say we had? 10 minutes. Um, so, there's a, so there's a number of things in that. So, so first, one big caution I should say is that the, the balance of trade this balance of payments issue is probably the bit that we know the least about in Scottish economic accounts because we don't actually produce import data. So we can ask firms about how much are you exporting, but it's very difficult. And the Scottish government, to be fair, have tried on a number of occasions to ask the other question, how much are you importing? So there's, there's a really big caveat in, in, in all of that. And so I think the, the, the question then becomes, I think ultimately about what's your macroeconomic structure that you would potentially go under independence. So if you put up barriers, then that potentially means that you would have uh, less opportunity to export into, into the rest of the UK, but potentially you could export more into the European Union if that's where you're going. The net effect is a bit which, if you look at the data at the moment, it would be a very hard, it would be very difficult in the short run to make up any offset uh, from that. And what that then means for your overall economic position will then be the thing that will drive your import demand coming in as well. And that's where you get into big questions about Scotland's underlying economic position, um, which then impacts on things like currency choices and fiscal sustainability and all of that. So there's a whole host of big issues in there. But I think two things I would say is one is what you're highlighting is just how you can't separate issues of trade out from broader conversations about the overall macroeconomic position and your currency choices and fiscal policies that you were doing. Secondly, the one thing I would say um, as well is that Scotland isn't unique in the UK in having an imbalance like that. One of the reasons that that exists is because the UK is a heavily unequal economy which creates these imbalances. So proponents of independence would argue that actually what you're highlighting is actually a weakness that's embedded into the current economic model we have at the UK. And they would argue that independence would give you a chance to, to reset that and break that. But it would there's big challenges in how you do that transition. So do, do you think there might be pressure on um, the, the, the First Minister of Scotland to replicate the policies that your former boss Alex Salmond had to have very low corporation tax to try and attract inward investment and boost Scotland's economy, economic production? I think, well, there's a big question about what's the economic model of an independent Scotland. And I think one of the things that we, we see that's changed quite a lot since 2014 is a lot of the 
the policy levers that the Scottish government said back in 2014 they would pull, like air passenger duty, like corporation tax, are issues that they're not now they're not now talking about. So one of the questions would be, well, what is the model of the economy? What what would you want to create as uh, a model of an independent Scottish economy? What what areas would you focus upon? And again, even that conversation can't then be separated from the discussion we're having today about borders. So what type of economy are you wanting to try and create? And where are the markets for the products that you're wanting to try and create? What's the type of currency that you're going to use? Where's the revenue that's going to flow in to maintain that currency uh, and the like? So I think there's a, there's a question that we've not had too much debate about post-2014. We've spoken a lot about the technical issues and about the, the need for a referendum, but actually, if you were to become independent, what would you do differently? And it's the bit that I think really needs to be, will be really fascinating to see what, how, that's, uh, how that's answered. So just bring, drawing together lots of the different themes that all four of you have um, been addressing, it, it seems to me that at the root of this, we have an extraordinarily complex political um, and um, structural challenge facing the Scottish government and the, and, and the pro-independence movement, that they have this endless process of triangulation, always trying to um, forecast and predict and, 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 and judge what the impacts of different political complexions in different parts of the country are going to have and different outcomes of different debates and so on and so forth. Can I just ask Nicola, do you think that given the fact that this is fundamentally, first and foremost, a problem for the Scottish government and the Scottish National Party to address since it's their question that we are addressing, the question of Scotland becoming independent. What, what do you think are the key challenges? What are the three or four questions that you think Nicola Sturgeon and the Scottish government need to address and answer when they go to the Scottish electorate in the next few months with their um, prospectus for independence? And that's independence with the EU being EU membership at some point in the future? Um, just just a, a short question then to, to finalise things. Um, I mean, I think that the, the, the issues that Graham was raising there on what is the economic model, what is, and, and that's not just about the economy, that's about the society as well. What are the choices that you would choose to make? The finances um, around independence are also different um, in part flowing from Brexit, in part flowing from changes in oil revenues, in part um, a consequence of COVID. And so all of that has changed the context in which these issues um, would be um, examined. Um, the border, obviously, uh, we've drawn attention to that one, and EU accession as well. So um, we talked before about downplaying issues around the border. I think maybe there's a little bit of downplaying issues around those negotiations to re-enter the European Union. So that's not to say any of this is impossible, but I think it's time um, now to be having an open debate. I don't think it is just an issue for the Scottish government. Um, I think it's an issue that we could all uh, engage in. Ultimately, this will be a decision for the people of Scotland to make. Um, if and when they are entitled or permitted to make that decision in a consensual way, um, but I think it's an issue for issues, a set of issues for all of us to examine. And if that is the choice that they make, what then? What are what are the choices that would have to be made? What are the scenarios that might unfold? What are the systems and processes that would have to be put in place? And um, because I think it would 
irrespective of where you stand on this, whether you want it, whether you don't, whether you love it or loathe it, it would surely be in people's interest to ensure that if that is the decision that is taken, that it works as smoothly as possible. Thank you. And, and Katie, you, you're in the um, unenviable position, I would argue, of living in a country which has um, three or four different paradigms to uh, deal with when it comes to um, the whole question about Northern Ireland's political and economic future. You've got your relationships with the Republic, you've got your relationships with the EU, you've got your relationships with, the, with, with Great Britain, and of course you've got your own internal uh, political dynamics, conflicts and conversations. Addressing this question about what you think Scotland might be able to learn from your experience in Northern Ireland, what do you think, as Nicholas says, the Scottish people should be thinking about and what do policymakers need to think about when it comes to looking at what's happened in Northern Ireland? Well, first I should say, I do like living here. <laughs> the complexity keeps me busy, um, apart from anything else. I, I think, um, well, first and foremost, I'll go back to that point around communication and information. So um, too much time was wasted with Brexit with, with um, uh, just not confronting the realities of the dis decision that was first posed in the referendum and then had, had been made. Um, that would make um, an enormous difference to the outcome and most particularly to the political dynamics. Um, but just to, just to step back a bit, I mean, I think the realities of those difficult situations and, and that those various competing fields are, are very much facing Scotland in the here and now. So um, with the intention, with the Continuity Act and the intention to continue to align as far as possible with certain EU rules, there are, always, there, there are already those issues that Scotland needs to, to face around um, what UK divergence from the EU means for Scotland if it wants to continue to align. And there will be ramifications, therefore, um, fairly soon on for Scotland's um, businesses and citizens, etc. Um, so in a funny way, even though we're talking hypothetically here, actually the consequences of Brexit for internal borders of the UK are very much apparent and will be increasingly felt, um, regardless of whether there's Scottish independence or not. Thank you very much. I'm grateful, Katie. Anand, do you have any observations on this? You just, you've got basically 60 seconds. No, I'm very, very happy to defer to these three on all these questions, quite frankly. I'm very grateful. I think we've now gone through some fairly um, complex and uh, thorny issues which are going to be debated and discussed for some time to come. Uh, I'd just like to recommend to members of the audience, people who've been watching this online, that the report from Katie and Nicola is well worth reading. It's very, very dispassionately and carefully written and does analyze and throw up some of the key questions that's gonna be facing Scotland and the rest of the UK as the debate around independence gathers pace. So on behalf of everybody that's taken part,